and welcome back to Close Reads on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Thank you, David. How's it going? It's going great. It's freezing here. It's 16 degrees outside. So, you know, you read Peace Like a River in winter for a reason, right? It's really true. Yes. <laughs> I feel I relate. What about you, Tim? Is it is it 16 degrees where you are, too? No, it's actually in the 40s. It's just... Heidi was talking off the air about how, you know, it just winter gets kind of long. Winter in Seattle is long for me. And the, the hardest part is it's constantly raining, except for during the summer times. The summers are perfect. But there's various forms of rain. And there's a <laughs> certain form of rain that seems to arrive right about now, which is the clouds feel like they're about eight feet off the ground, maybe even lower, like six feet off the ground. And there's just this perpetual drizzle and darkness so uh, it's dark yeah. at 4 15 4 30 and the clouds are like hanging low everything outside is wet and cold and it's just like i'm over Gloomy. it yeah, yeah I'm done yeah. how so, are you david yeah tell is us about like the, like, 70 degrees exactly exactly no it's uh 53 that actually might be right <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's, um, I mean, I like, like I, I'm wearing a jacket. Like it's kind of cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you like my day? It's actually voice? 44, but the, the high today is supposed to be 53. So. Oh, wow. wow. Look at that. Good job, Tim. Somebody yeah. checked their. Profit. The, 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 so- Google, <laughs> the Apple, Apple weather app right as they were speaking. I have no I'm going to look like I know what I'm talking about. I'm going to look like Jeremiah Land just because. Okay, the- <laughs> that's right. That's a nice segue, but I want to say it's not as if I've not lived in the South for like the bulk of my life. Yeah, uh, exactly. True. Exactly. True. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, we are here to discuss Peace Like a River. This is the the final uh, episode where we are going to discuss the book without the help of listener questions. We'll put it that way. So next week, uh, we will be discussing, well, answering your questions. So we'll have the thread. After this episode, we'll post the thread on the Facebook page. And if you want to email us, you can also do that. Podcast at gmail.com. If you want to get in touch with us on some other social media, platform you can do that on twitter and instagram at close reads pods and then like i said there is the facebook group where we will gather all the questions and then also of course you can join the conversation there has been plenty of conversation about this book on the facebook page the last few days um ranging from uh questions to uh criticisms of tim's criticisms <laughs> to uh to uh people just asking questions about what's going on you know people all offering of me chocolate and wine that happens so it's like my favorite place right now. <laughs> so I just, just to recap this, I, my criticisms are being criticized and you're getting offered chocolate and wine. This is, this is like this. I feel like this works really well. This is completely fair. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, isn't this book all about how justice is a gray area and sometimes things aren't fair anyway. It's so. true. I'm sweet here though. That was justice. <laughs> the chocolate and wine belongs to me. <laughs> Well, we are here to discuss the final, the, the final pages, the final chapters of this book. Um, we we left a shorter reading because I think I figured there'd be um, plenty of things to discuss, debate, um, you know, complain about, right, maybe. And um, you know, I had a few. I, I was thinking a lot about how do we how do we go into these final this final section because we could talk about the buildup, and um, you know, we could talk about the. Uh, the scene where Davy shows up with Sarah and things are kind of idyllic there for 
I don't know, like a six minute. hours or something. Yeah. 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 And then um, we could talk about the sort of the violence that comes to a head. And then we could talk about um, the miracle the dream sequence or whatever we want to call that. And then, and then, of course, there's the bit after that where, where um, kind of like the epilogue, he even calls it an epilogue where, you know, every now and then he goes out to the wilderness and Davy, if he feels like it happens upon him. So there's all these different places we could talk about. But then I started thinking about the structure of the book. And so I have a question for you guys. You may think this question has an obvious answer. And at first I did too. And then I started thinking about it and I'm not sure that it does anymore. At least it's not as clear in my head anymore. So Tim, there's this concept in fiction in storytelling called the denouement. Mm-hmm. What is the denouement? What, what, what scene is the denouement in this book? Do you think? Oh, Oh, that's a really good question. Do you want, you want to actually, well, before we dive into this, do you want to define the term for us or should I just go to Wikipedia and we can read that definition? <laughs> I'll give maybe, maybe both would be, in order. <laughs> I think it's French for falling action. Denouement. Mm-hmm. Or that's at least what it's come to mean now. I don't know if that's what the original meaning is. Isn't it unraveling? Is that what it means originally? Isn't that the literal I, translation I th- of it? I think, yeah, I think it is. Um, but it is, I mean, it, it, it is essentially exactly what you said, the falling action of the story. And so it typically takes place after the main crisis when the hero faces the chief antagonist or, you know, like when everything just rises to a head after that event. That's when the falling action takes place. <sighs> so I, and I said, scene. I mean, I know that it can be a series of scenes as far as the, the Danny. Yeah. 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 But I, the yeah. question for me is, does the denouement begin? Does the denouement encapsulate the trip to the garden, which seems like it's, it's heaven or it's at least kind of like, the ante room to heaven. Um, does it include that or does it begin after Dave, uh, excuse me, after Ruben returns from being, it seems like dead for a little while. And if I had, I, if I had to choose, I would choose after he returns rather than the falling action includes his time in the afterlife. What do you guys think? Yeah, Heidi, where do you stand on this? What do you think? I think it's, I think, as you said, David, it's a complicated question because that, the the scene of <laughs> the death and the rebirth, a literal death, a literal coming back to life, um, all tangled up with Ruben's healing. That's, I think it happens before. I, I, I think that's a result of earlier turning points. The big shift, I think that the reading this week began. The falling action? Yeah. But, yeah. The, not to linger on it, but I was getting worse. The fact that seated in the night or seeped in the night, so we'd volunteered to watch it. So I, I think that I'm wondering if, if it's Ruben's choice not to lead them to the cabin. You as the falling action, as or as the, the crisis, as the turning point of mm-hmm. the story that like, like the climax. Oh, it's so that's tricky. But when I think of the untangling, I'm thinking of it in terms of what happens in the novel that determines the end, mm-hmm. that makes it so the end is inevitable. 
And so I, I think it's the search for Davy that, the, that ends with in nothing. Mm. So everything that's been going on kind of like we, we, you thought it was all going to lead up to something and then it didn't. That's one of the things that I think is interesting about this book because I've been thinking a lot recently about the way storytellers structure um, their stories before they start writing, say. You know, I know some writers just start writing and they let it sort of build as they go through the writing process. But then I was uh, following Ryan Johnson, who, who famously made, um, among many other movies, The Last Jedi. But then he recently, his movie last year was called Knives Out, which is kind of a Agatha Christie style uh, mystery story. And it's great. And he was posting these um, screenshots online of his journals as he was sort of plotting out the story. And so I've been thinking a lot about like it sparked my curiosity about well how do you how do different writers plot out their stories? You know, there's all these stories about Faulkner famously writing on the walls of his his room, his study. Mm-hmm. Um, and so writers are do things all in all kinds of different ways. And so I was imagining did anger did he draw out this plot ahead of time, and then did he? did he label things like to help himself figure out, you know, where's the climax of the story, you know, all that sort of thing. And then I thought, well, it seems like, you know, is it a mark of great novels that those sorts of traditional markers are often not, um, could, could be multiple things or is it the opposite? Is the opposite true? Like, is it a flaw if you don't know, where right. the markers of the parts of a story are. I mean, I'm not trying to draw too stark right. of a line. I know that's not really fair to, to make it binary like that, I guess. But I, I, it just got this book, as I was thinking about these other things, I was thinking about this book and looking at the way, as you said, Heidi, we have this big plot thing that's driving the plot of the story, right? The search for Davy. Like they get mm-hmm. an airstream for that purpose. Then all of a sudden they stop and then you add the Roxana element to it. But then they're back out in the wilderness all these different times. And like you think you're about to lead up to a big gunfight, kind of a Butch Cassidy type thing, which the story has been suggesting, like, you know, an, a, a, like a Western gunfight. And then it doesn't really happen. And it feels like the whole thing was for naught, except maybe Roxana. And then they're home and he's sick. And then you do get a gunfight, but there's not actually a gunfight. It's right. just, it all happens so fast. And then Davey runs off. And we need to talk about that in a little bit. So, David, can I ask a, like, a, change your question Uh, well i'm just gonna ask a slightly different question that maybe will help us answer the question that you asked Mm -hmm. what's the what is the moment what is the climactic moment of the book are you asking me or are you just turning the question yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) no i'm asking both of you even that one's a little bit tricky to answer yeah that's true I think maybe one of the things I was thinking about is maybe it's a little tricky because the question of who our sort of protagonist is, uh-huh. is itself a little gray. Like is the protagonist, I mean, ostensibly it's Ruben who's our narrator, right. yeah. but in his mind, is it like, right. That, so that there's some, so if it's the thing that changes the protagonist's fate, so to speak, if that's what we're kind of thinking about as our climax, then is it when he goes in, to his potential he- the heaven like he's like the the vision heaven area whatever we want to call that um or is it if it's jeremiah is it when he gets shot is it is it i mean that's the thing that i was trying to figure out is like yeah do, does the book just because he tells the story doesn't mean he's necessarily 
Mm -hmm. This may be a counterintuitive point or argument, but just because he's the one telling the story and it's from his perspective doesn't mean that our true protagonist of the story is Ruben. Because in many ways, until he takes the guys the wrong way, he doesn't really do anything to drive any action. Right. And so I I was wondering if maybe that's the moment where the the things begin to change for him because he takes action and then he starts to go downhill. I completely agree with that. Well, and I think in Ruben's mind, he's telling this, it's a story within a story. Like it's a very Mm -hmm. complex story. Like in Ruben's mind, he is telling the story of Davy, but the whole time I think he's telling his own story. And so I do think that the climactic redemptive moment of the story is when he's given his life back, the chiasm, right? He's given his life back by his father. And that is the good and proper redemption of this story. Davy was always going to be Butch Cassidy and yeah. Jeremiah Land was always going to be a martyr. And, and, that, and, and the life at the salvation at stake was always Rubens. And, and I, I think that that is one of the complex threads of this story. And I'm not saying that's the only thing the story is about, but it is what the story is about. That's one of the things the story is about. And it's a main thing. Mm. And, and, and I think in a way, Ruben, there's so many clues that Ruben is in many ways blind to what the whole story is about throughout the story, right? He's like, oh, I wasn't even paying attention to this or that or whatever. I was so focused on Davy that I didn't notice dot, dot, dot. That happens many times. And I think one of the things he's not paying attention to is his own need to be saved. And that's what happens. That's the story. And what do you mean by saved, Heidi? Well, I think in the story, it's it's his breath, it's his life, mm. Mm. but I, there's there's something bigger at stake there too. I mean, that's it. Th- that was always a metaphor. That's what we talked about last week. But it's also a fact within the world of the story. He ne- he can't live in the world. He's dying. By the end of the story, he's dying, and it's just a matter of time. He's losing his breath, and yeah. there is the intervention. His father says a cup, I think twice in the story. Is it twice or is it more than that? When he says, I, I, would, I would change places with you if I could. And that whole time, it's been foreshadowing that whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're, we're thinking about getting Davy back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. What, if the, what if the climax of the book is the reunion, all the families together, and the falling action begins like with the first gunshot? I, I know that that doesn't really two things. We don't have to like cram. And I realize that we don't have to cram <laughs> yeah, this yeah, book yeah. into kind of like a three point, a three act arc plot, you know, like, or like, you know, the five act was, was it Freytag who wrote the, the five act structure with the exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, right. and then the denouement at the end. Yeah. You don't we, have to cram it into that. Yeah. We're doing that mainly just because it's a sort of yeah, it's an discussion piece. But I wonder if I agree, Heidi. The redemption of the book is is Reuben getting his life back. Reuben, in your words, being saved. But I wonder if it it feels to me like once the family is all together, this has been the thing that we've been pursuing the whole time. It's not really we've been pursuing Reuben's health. Reuben's health has been at risk, but the thing that we've been on about is let's get Davy back. And this is the first time that he's back with the whole family. Mm-hmm. 
And then he steps outside, the whole family steps outside and we see Jape and the shots are fired. And that to me, maybe that's the point that the closing action begins or maybe like by extension, excuse me, Ruben's time in heaven is sort of like extension of that reunion and like a chance to say goodbye to his father. Right. And the falling action begins when he comes out of that. I can see that also. Hmm. Either way, it seems to me like the, the climax, I would argue that the climax of the story is the reunion. Hmm. Well, that, and that, I guess, you know, what's interesting is that if that's true, which, uh, I like, then uh, Heidi, you talked about how the whole, like the reunion happens, not because of their journey, but because Davy just shows back up. <laughs> right. Like he just decides to come back. Why do you think he did that by the way? I mean, I think that they, the, plot point, which I think is a really good explanation, is that he's bringing Sarah to yeah. the family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that works. Um, and I think that's perfectly consistent with Davey. And then I also think the story needs it because the story is, um, there's, there's no neat little bow on this story. There's, there's no perfect fairy tale ending. <laughs> and so, but you the story absolutely needs to have this family reunited for a time or else it just is, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So I I think not only for the plot, but for like the hearts of the readers um, and for the story just to work, to be redemptive, even though it's not tied up in a little bit, there has to be some kind of connection for this family to talk and say they love each other before they are divided forever. And to have Sarah incorporated into the family, yeah, to have Davy, exact Ro- Roxanne, exactly. Yeah, Roxana. Yeah, yeah. they need they, it needed that, and I think it worked really well. I think that he, I, think I agree. Anger gave us enough so that then he, then the division when the division happened, there was at least some kind of you know a meal, a shared meal, a sacramental moment of the family being together. Mm, yeah. So. In the end, do you think that this novel has has um, how does the catharsis part work out for you guys? Because ostensibly, the book has always been about well, we you think for a long time as we've been discussing that the book's about catching finding Davy and your the fears that you have for much of the novel are you know when they get to Davy is he going to die you know are they going to catch him is he going to be in jail what's that going to mean for the family and then it starts changing as we've discussed but in the end, is there the necessary amount of catharsis for you, Heidi? Yeah, I think so. And where does it come from? Um, I, it comes from the uh, the fact that they had that shared time together. It comes from Roxana being their mother. It comes from Ruben being able to breathe and them being able to heal somebody, having Sarah with them. Uh, and they all go through a, a, a season of, of healing together. Um, that's not idealized. I think that that's really good. Um, and I think that it comes from a realistic, true to the characters kind of trajectory into the future that's given to us. Um, and then the, just that vision of heaven, or at least the entrance into the afterlife is profoundly healing, I think, to the readers who are paying attention to that and certainly to Ruben. Go on. 
<laughs> Expand. Expand on that. I'm going to need you to unpack that point for me, please. Um, Three sub so, points, if you will. Right. Sub points. Um, <laughs> so the last... I think that this line he gives us on page 310, the very last sentence on page 310, for just as that me, and he's, he's trying to explain to Davy what he saw in that scene uh, in his between life and death. And he says, for just as that music stays outside the pattern I would give it, so does my telling fall pitifully short of what the place is. I just love that sentence. I think that sentence absolutely encapsulates what anger um, did, at least for me in the story, which was he allows the harmony of this story to go outside the boundaries that we want to put it into. Like I wanted the neat little bow at the end of this story. I was like, this family has been through enough, but Mm. that is not how the story ends. And for him to acknowledge that and to say, but there is a harmony in this afterlife. There, there is a harmony in the, to use the Christian term, in the kingdom of God that is beyond how I would make the harmony. <laughs> Feels mm. like there's too much dissonance in it. Um, but our telling actually falls pitifully short. And, and I, I loved that. And I think I felt that throughout the whole story. Like this story is just painful and it, it was really painful for me to read it. In fact, there's even that section when he leads them the wrong way. I tried to read that closely. I know that that's the name of the podcast that I'm on and I really <laughs> tried to read it closely, but like, I really couldn't do it. Like it was so painful. How, how come Heidi? Because he's just so confused and lost oh. and he, and he's all alone. And I just like, I couldn't, I couldn't not see my son out there trying mm, to trying mm. to navigate that and surrounded so, by these kind of brutish men and everything is on his shoulders that are far too weak to carry that yeah and no matter what he does it's wrong yeah no matter right. what he does it's wrong and that's and and also right you know like it's just too mm-hmm. gray that is too gray for a child that is too gray for a child you might be able to make sense of that later in your life but you can't at the time and I barely can. I don't have any idea what Ruben should have done in that situation. I have none. I could not tell him what he should do there. You know, and so that's yeah. painful. That's outside the lines, right? That's the music outside the pattern I would give it. And I think it's brave to tell that story. Hmm. Anyway, I really like you say, David. Well, no, I just really like that you brought up the question of what what he should have done because I was sitting here, I was sitting there reading the book, thinking it's that it's pro- it's one of the better examples I can think of on, on the, on the concept of like why we should be asking what characters should do in books, because the answer to the question, I'm not saying as I want to clarify again, as I've done many times, I'm not saying that we should judge the author for make for the choice that he has the character make, right? The character still has to make a decision in a situation. That's what drives drama. And this is one of the great examples of, I don't know what the right choice is. Right. Like, the fact that there is, I mean, Tim, did you think there's a clear, obvious choice that he Mm-mm. should have done something Mm-mm. or the other? Mm-mm. I think that's one of the things that makes the book so compelling is because from the beginning, these characters are constantly having to, they're running up against choices and the, and the, the, there's never or almost never an obvious, the only time there's an obvious choice 
is when the is about the question of whether they should stick around with Roxana. <laughs> right. That one seems okay. obvious. But other than that, almost every choice that they make is there's this gray area. And and that's compelling in part because that's what our lives are like. We don't, you know, our lives aren't aren't lived. We don't have the the concept of narrative structure <laughs> to guide our choices. Um and 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 so that makes it compelling, but it also is compelling because it makes because the characters become so much more alive, right? Like they, it gives them a sort of, uh, it sort of humanizes them and makes them feel real. You know, like when you don't know what the character should have done, you feel that much more for them. When you know what they should do, and then they either do the thing, like, and when so when you, okay, I'm trying to think how to say this. When you know what a character should do, like when the choice is obvious and they make the wrong choice, it's easy to be, to be condescending to them. And I don't mean that in like, in kind of like be a jerk to them, but just in the sense that you look down on them, you judge them. But when the character makes choices in a situation where it's not obvious, it adds to the humanism, it humanizes them and adds to the pathos of the moment because you feel it, that you feel a dissonance in yourself because you don't know how to make the choice. Right. And I think that like that seems like an like well why don't all authors do that? But I think pulling it off is much more difficult than than it, you'd think it is than it seems. Cuz I mean I can talk about like this in abstract terms, but I don't know that I can present the scenario or create a fictional scenario in which that happens in a way that is that has that much pathos to it. Right. I agree. Tim can and- though. Tim's a great playwright, so <laughs> It is. It's hard to do that because, well, so many of the choices that characters have to make are, um, are have have a moral weight to them that we bring our own perspectives to, and and this one with whether or not to lead, like somebody, so something is at stake no matter what Ruben does, and and. Life anger just crafted that so beautifully. And that is why I think that scene is the turning point. But it's a bit of an unsatisfying turning point because it doesn't have, you know, Odysseus leaping up on the table to avenge himself on the suitors. Like there's there there is no heroic choice in that. Mm. There is no clear, you know, I, I'm by what I do here, I determine how this story ends. Like he knows that. Mm. He knows that. And he does not know what to do. And I don't either. And I think that that is so brilliant on, on Lightfinger's part. And it changes everything. Like that, that it does determine how the story ends. Tim, I want to turn to you here because I asked the question about catharsis and then we kind of, Heidi answered, we kind of went off on this, but I want to go back to you. I know you have a specific criticism or complaint or frustration. And we'll get to that in a minute, but I'm wondering if does that criticism or complaint mean that if you, does that diminish the sort of catharsis for you? Is that kind of yeah, a little bit, a little bit. It's it. I mean, it doesn't, I was really moved by the end. I was really sad that Jeremiah land died, even though, I agree with Heidi that it had to happen. The book was like set up. Telling us it's going to happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it had to happen. But I I grew to appreciate him so much as a character. I mean, it's it's so rare to see a a, look. Oh, just a really well drawn character who is like the servant to all. 
you know, and I kind of got that from Jeremiah land. Mm. Um, and so I was sad. I was very sad to see him dead. That was probably the thing that made me saddest in the entire, in the entire, sort of say the entire movie, in the entire book. Mm. Um, so yeah, and and that was the catharsis for me. That was the primary kind of wedge of the catharsis, and yeah, it was really moving. Mm. Well, okay, let's talk about. We need to talk about the end, and this is where you have a complaint so if you if people are listening uh tim <laughs> tim's gonna yeah. tim's gonna complain about something so or maybe complains the wrong word uh, that's maybe sounds demeaning but um tim's going to criticize something so if you don't want to have a book you love criticized that and you're not, i know you're not how i would online, be then feel free to skip ahead <laughs> yeah seriously please skip ahead because i there's certain books for me that like if david you or heidi you like really had you know criticism about it i know that i would snap into kind of like a defensive mode and i wouldn't be able to see it because i care for the book so much and i don't want i think this is a really good book and i'm glad that we've read it and i'm glad that so many people have enjoyed it so i'm really really reluctant to be critical because i've seen how many people appreciate this book so please pass over this if you enjoy the book and you don't want to be troubled it's it's not a big deal on the other hand knowing our audience people aren't skipping over this they're just gonna take (laughs) up the fight i do i actually think that your criticism is uh will lead us into some interesting uh conversation i think there's a lot to talk about here and your main criticism if if is basically related to davy's uh departure at the very end of the book right yeah i so the reunion takes place and then the family is saying goodbye and Jape shows up with the gun. Shots are fired. Ruben is hit and um, his father is hit. Jeremiah is hit. And the only thing we get about Davey is that he's curled up in the back of the truck and that he drives away. And I just thought, boy, I, I, I really struggled with his father and his brother have just been shot and presumably are going to die. One of them does, both of them do. And he drives away and we, and and we don't hear anything about that from Davey other than he asks about Ruben's kind of the afterlife experience. That's the only thing that we get about, Davy, mm-hmm. and I just felt like that was a to me a pretty significant um, gap in the the telling of that character, Davy. And I, and I've kind of felt like that's come up a couple times with Davy. That I mean, this is like the heart of my criticism. It seems to me that Davy often served as a plot point more than a character, hmm. and I felt felt like he was a, a significant enough character that he, he was so much more significant than Andreessen, for example. If Andreessen's just like a plot point, he just drives the plot forward, totally fine. He's such a minor character, it's fine. But Davey, ostensibly, is what the mo- the book is You really about. want a movie made out of this, don't you? I know, I really do. I believe um, they actually, um, they had at least had, so they signed, I think, on that. I remember reading about a oh, production really? that was going to happen. I don't know if it ever did, though. Huh. I, I just think that Davy is a significant enough character that 
just having him drive off when his brother and father are dying from gunshot wounds. I just found that really, it was hard to look past that. Okay. So without any further explanation of what was going on with Davy, when we kind of like, we could have come back to him as we did later in the book. We had, for me, we had to hear what was going on for Davy in that moment. Okay. So uh, let's kind of examine, let's kind of like break down what happens because when Ruben comes back from the dead, so to speak, Davy is is uh, hunkered down in the mm-hmm. uh, burrowed in the back seat, mm-hmm. um, and then once everything's quiet, the Ford is gone and Davy's with it. Walter's chair lay tipped in the shade beside the barn. That's how it says on three hundred five. Mm-hmm. So, is when I first read it. I guess this maybe this runs a little counter to what you're saying. I don't know. Maybe this is why it didn't bother me. Because when I first read it, I read it like he's going after Walter. That's what I thought. I thought he was like chasing he, Walter. Like he's chasing him down. That's how I read it. So you read it like he's just kind of running away? Yeah. I mean, I think either way, I, I think either way I'd have a problem. I could kind of understand him chasing after Walter. But say he chases him down and finishes him off, then can he he can't really come back, right? No, I mean he can't come back. I, I mean the minute the police are on their way, like he this can't is come the back. thing that sets him off. In, you know, it's the reason. That, I mean, he he was going to leave anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can see the 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 point about Davy kind of being like um, as a character, not not being able to. Um, like he feels maybe a bit too much like a, a plot maneuverer. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I think for me, maybe the, the thing, the fact that we keep coming back to this question of Davy's um, motivations and his choices and questioning why he does the things that he does. And the fact that it happens more than one time in some ways makes it work for me because he's really always kind of been about um, his own I don't want to say about himself because that's not entirely true, but he is sort of about doing what the moment dictates and then responding in a whatever way is going to help him survive. <laughs> so I, I, I guess I can, I can see what you're saying. And then also at the same time, wonder if maybe that's not actually the character, if that makes sense. Heidi, before we let Tim respond to us, <laughs> let's, I want to let you respond to him and then he can, he can rebut. Here's where I think Tim's a hundred percent right. Is that Davy is, very, very hard to, he's not, he's not easy to characterize for the reader. And there are things about his motivations that I still don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 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 Whether, whether life anger has that very clear in his mind, I didn't catch it. There's a couple of his decisions. The one we talked about last week and then this one, um, I think Tim's right. I think it's not fully, like we're not given clues within the text that tell us why he left at this point. Um, and we know him to be a very protective person and we know him to be very attached to his family, but we also know that he is running from justice. And so he is not a hero. And I think that that has to be said, like Davy is not the hero of this story. Yeah. And, um, 
And so if we're looking for him to be some kind of sainted hero who is just a misunderstood, blah, blah, blah. No, he committed first degree murder at age 16. And he's on the run from the law. And, um, and the last command that Jeremiah Land gives to Reuben is for Davy's salvation, right? Tell Davy. And, and I, I think there's a lot in those two little words, tell Davy. Uh, uh, and so I think Tim's right about that. I, I do think though, that he is in an imp- another impossible situation, Davy is. And so um, I don't think he's just a coward that runs, but I think the story tells us that he's not a coward, even though he's a flawed and not the hero. So I yeah, don't see it yeah. as a cowardly move. I do think he chased Jape. I don't think there's any other explanation. Um, and if it is that he just ran away, I agree with Tim. That's completely inconsistent. It the, seems to me. Thing, he, you go, go ahead, David. Well, I was just going to say, it seems to me that he is the thing we, I, he, he, this is true of actually a lot of outlaws, I think, like outlaw stories. They become these legends, but they're legends at like 17, you know? Like Billy mm-hmm. the Kid was like, I mean, there's a reason he was called Billy the Kid, right? He was like 17 years old when he became really famous. And these, like, we forget, that even if it was a different time as far as what being 17 meant, we forget that this is still a 17 year old kid who has a guy firing a gun at him and his brothers get shot, or his brother and his dad get shot. And we already know that he responds, like, he responds with a sort of like, protective rage you know and so it would it makes sense to me given everything we know that he's just going to jump in the car and chase chase jake that he's not going to like stay behind that's not and check on people that's not he doesn't he's not that's not really his way you know and and also at the same time he's a kid so he probably doesn't know what to do and so he just responds you know Mm -hmm. i i think the question of how there's some people who are very cautious and think things through like jeremiah land and then that it's the contrast between davies just taking action without thinking that I think is one of the moving parts of the story. And I was thinking about it in relation to like being a parent (laughs) Mm -hmm. because people are so you're, you often so different from your kids or from your parents or whatever. And you don't understand what motivates or drives or makes people take action. You barely even know what makes yourself take action. And so Mm -hmm. for me that those differences kind of, or one of the things that makes that adds the pathos to the story, but go ahead, Tim, you respond now. I think there was, there could be a pretty simple, I mean, I think Davey's flawed. I agree. I also think that Davey kind of, he has a code. I mean, I think that the killing of those two boys mm-hmm. is like him living out his code. And I think part of his code yeah. is like, yeah. he did that out of care for his family. And I, I just wish that we had returned to Davey when he, you know, comes back to Reuben and they kind of meet up later in life. I just wanted to hear like in those last couple pages. You mean? Yes. Yeah. Let's hear Davy say what was going on in his mind to Reuben. His father is dying. I mean, you know, like I get, it's like an absolutely, it's a no win situation, but I just think like given his kind of moral compass that I, I think that he would need Reuben to understand why he made the decision that he made. It maybe wasn't the best decision. It maybe wasn't the worst decision. There was kind of like, it was a no-win situation. But I would think that given um, how much he cared about his father and his brother, that he just would need to address it with with Reuben. And 
it needs to be in the book. It can't happen off stage. So, I mean, you're basically what you're saying then is you need like you need the catharsis to happen in the drama. Yeah, because I think it's such a because Debbie is such an integral character, and he's torn between these like rival goods, chasing down Walzer, staying with his dying brother and father. I just think that like in that's it. Here, this is a good way of saying it. We can hear when Ruben is like riding the horse, he's in this no win situation and he's going to try to find his brother. We hear him reasoning with himself constantly about what he should do. What should I do? What should I do? And I think that Ruben Davy is a significant enough character that when he's in a similar no win situation, I just think we got to hear why he made that decision. And I think he's got to be able to kind of like, justified in some way to Ruben. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, it, it makes sense. And I'm trying to think through why it doesn't bother me. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, okay, so on 310, Heidi brought it up. Um, there's that paragraph right before the break. Um, uh, Ruben is up in the, uh, kind of up in the hunting area where he goes hunting and he's eating. Um outside leaves beat past in a wet wind what i wanted there's the wind thing again uh, by the way that's why i read that what i wanted was pancakes and sausage so i ordered and took a clean cup and helped myself to coffee davy came in the door before my short stack arrived he wore a down jacket and new lace-up boots at last some decent gloves he sat down you hunting alone rube and for some reason that line is more dramatic offers more pathos and meaning in its stasis like in the stasis mm-hmm. that it gives us than if he had told us what was on his mind I, I don't know why that works for me but i also can sympathize or empathize i guess that it doesn't that, that it leaves you wanting more like i understand what you're saying but like intellectually but it doesn't bother me in my soul yeah that. is that fair so is that yeah like uh-huh um and so, like, I'm not criticizing the criticism. I'm just saying, for whatever reason, when mm-hmm. he says "you hunting alone, Rube," that the sadness in a line like that for both uh-huh. of them, it, like, and then they're coming together, like, j- just knowing that that's there, and like the having the sort of the white space left there for me, it works for me. But I can understand why it doesn't work for you. Yeah, enough. Yeah, I just love how Ruben ends the story, witnessing, like, in multiple levels. That I mean, just. He's the witness. He's telling the story. He's the one telling Davy all the news. He's the one telling Davy about, as his father told him to, telling him about the, the, the strange country that he was in after his death. And then at the end, that's the last lines of the book are a declaration of his witness again. And I just, I just love that. Mm. So, okay. I want to, Tim, there's a line here on 310 yeah. that I think might might actually be a nod to what you're saying. Because it says, so I give him the news. He reads all of Swede's work. He sends regards and comments. It drives her wild that he never appears in the midst of what she's doing, but she knows he's crazy about her. Twice, Swede has accompanied me, hoping to see him, neither time with success. And then it says, yep. possibly he dreads what she might ask of him. And then it just switches gears again. You got awfully big, he told me. So take some back to 
the present moment, so to speak. And I, maybe that line there, possibly he dreads what she might ask of him, is, a, is touching on what you're saying there. Because what could she ask him that he is dreading? Is, is it, why have you not come back? Why did you leave? I mean, is that the thing that she would ask him that he's dreading talking about? And he can't, he doesn't have words to, to explain why. Okay, so that's a possibility. But then, man, I really feel like I'm like bang on this book. But I, I okay, <laughs> if, if that is the thing that Swede wants to ask him, remember when Swede felt that Ruben had betrayed her by not telling where Davy was? Swede mm-hmm. like sells up. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, she gets real sullen. She's hardly talking to Ruben. Um, if, if Swede is wondering why Davy left when his you know, father and brother had just been shot, I would think, why is Swede not? And she doesn't have, feel like she has an explanation about that. It seems like it'd be in keeping with Swede's character to be kind of upset with Davy, but she's not. She knows he's crazy about her. And, and Swede is like seemingly like she wants to be with Davy. She still loves Davy. We don't get any notion that like Swede is sold up at Davy. Am I just being like too rough? I, I think what you're saying, I, I wouldn't call is it like, rough. <laughs> I get what you're saying. Cause I, what I think I hear you saying is, like you have as an author in good faith, you provide an explanation for the main points of the book yeah. and a character's motivation. You figure out a way to work that into the text. It's necessary. Otherwise right. it just is an, un- it's, it's not a denouement. It's not an unraveling of the threads. It's just a, a thread that went nowhere in the yeah. story. So I think that that's what you're. Yes. And for me, if Sweet is upset with Davy. That's, I mean, like to me, in some ways, that's satisfying. Yeah, like considering like what an awful situation that Davy was in, he had to make this kind of judgment call. I'm either going to chase the bad guy or I'm going to stay with the good guys. It's a terrible choice to make. And I can totally imagine Swede being upset about it and like holding it against him. I just think like, I don't know, it, it, it just... It just didn't ring true for you. No, and I think that that's, no. I think, I, I think that what you're pointing out about the necessity of storytellers to tie up those, those things, even if it's ambiguous, which there's so absolutely many, right. So absolutely right. In this story that are ambiguous and, and Ruben doesn't tell everything. There's plenty of things that are left up to the reader to interpret for himself. But this one just felt like it was outside the pale for you. Yeah. For me, that it, it, for me, it's just, it was asking too much of, yes, I don't need to expand anymore. you exactly right, hiding. Okay. Well, we do need to, we're going to run out of time and we need to touch on the, uh, the, I don't even know the, the heaven like sequence yeah. before we finish here. Um, did you, you know what? I just realized, <laughs> I just realized there's a whole, um, like, reading group series of questions in the back of the book. Did you guys notice that? I, well, I don't know what no. edition you have. My edition does. It's a newer, I think it's a newer one because it has the first chapter of Virgil Wander. <laughs> My copy got lost somewhere. Somebody borrowed it and never gave it back. So I had to go buy another one. Um, I don't at the have back, that. 
It was like 15 questions. And it's really interesting because now I'm realizing I could have spent a lot less time thinking about this and just done the work the publisher gave me. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but I just ran across that as I was flipping to the back. But let's... Okay, let's talk about this... Um, starts in 301. Three, 300. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the scene in the orchard, I guess. Yeah. He calls it the next country, yeah. which I really love. And it's a very, uh, it, people were asking online if it made them think of C.S. Lewis and it, and it does make me think of the last battle. Yeah. Of course. Uh, I would be surprised if he hadn't, Leifanger hadn't recently read the last battle to his kids or something. Well, and some. Prince Caspian and, True. um, the great divorce. True. Yeah. The great divorce. That's true. I was thinking also at, you know, you mentioned the, the callback, I think you said chiastic, but I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know that the book is actually chiastic so much as it just has callbacks to the beginning. Um, but th- there's the, the stuff about the birds and stuff and um, here calls back to the, um, to the opening scene. And so one of the things I'm wondering is, is this scene, the, does the fact that it seems to reference or allude to or call back to or whatever, the opening scene where they're hunting geese, uh-huh. what does that say about the opening scene and how we should then think about what it means. Well, there's another reference to the geese, and that's with when um, on page 299. Yep. When Jape shoots Reuben yeah. and like a flaring goose. Yeah. Right. And he says he led he leads him like a goose. Like he hunts him. Like if Jape was going after Reuben. Yeah. With the rifle, yeah. Um, and so, and he, and he, and he is like Reuben himself is like the goose. Yeah, in there, in here, not Jape being like the goose. Yeah. Yes. Um, so Jape is hunting him, and then um, there's another thing that I forgot. So then, is it the um, the is it a reversal? Because in the beginning they're hunting and then here they're hunted. I mean, that's obviously a reversal. But in terms of the, right. what the geese represent and all that, is, it like, is there a thematic metaphorical reversal going on here? Well, it's, I, I, that's a good question. Because Besides I, just a dramatic one, just to clarify. Because I felt, right. Because I, I felt, I mean, and that's when Davy finds him too on page 309 and 310. He's hunting, he's hunting geese and he's talking about all the, the 10,000 geese. Um, 10 or 20,000 across a morning and you might be, and, and, and he's describing the geese as he's hunting them. And that's when Davy comes and talks to him and says that that haunting line, are you hunting alone, Rube? So there is something really important about the geese hunting, but I feel like I didn't have enough time to think about it by the, like I noticed it last night and then I haven't had enough time to think about it to come up with some kind of coherent theory about the geese. <laughs> I was thinking a lot about the, like the concept of hunting throughout the whole book and the, and hunting the, and the concept of loneliness hmm. because the beginning he's this kid who longs to be like his brother who is like the cool, you know, capable older brother. And to some extent, his dad, he knows his own weaknesses and the brother is teaching him how to hunt. And then, you know, then, 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 his brother in a sense hunts down these two bad dudes and then he becomes the hunted. And so then there's all these different layers of hunting going on. And then in the end here, they're both hunting by themselves. And so 
you know, what they start out hunting together. And then in the end, they, you know, there's, they come together again while hunting. It, it's just, it's interesting. I would, but you can't really say that they're hunting together. They come together to meet when he goes up to go hunting, but it's not the same thing. You know, they're not like in the tree stand or whatever on the edge of the river together, sighting, sighting geese. It's, so it's like, they're almost able to be together, but they're not able to be together, which is what he says. You know, it's a bad way to keep up with your brother. <laughs> right. Right. And, but he says on page 300, the meadow was layered with flight. In fact, it seemed there was nothing that couldn't take wing. Seized with conviction, I spread my arms and ran for it. Right. There's the last battle thing. And, and there's the idea. No liftoff, but I came close. Right. Yeah. I like that line. And that, that now he's, he's, he's just been downed like a sitting duck. Like he's just been hunted down and killed, murdered. And yet his very first action is to take flight. Like that's a really lovely redemptive image there. Um, and I think I've been thinking a lot about the the outlaw thing, probably because we just watched Mandalorian and we're reading this. And the, <laughs> the, the idea of the, the, the American outlaw story that ends in a gunfight, as you said, David. But this story is darker than that. Like this, this is very, that this story is very subversive to that outlaw image, I think. And, and that really evil wins without like Valdez. Yeah, there's no romanticism. Yes. The outlaw doesn't take down the bad guy. The outlaws run out of town by the bad guy. The, 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 the bad guy kills his family and he runs. It's just and that's how the it's story, layers of outlaw. <laughs> yes, and that's that's the end. Like I, I feel like this is a story that says without the next country, there is like Valdez Chaos. wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and I that's why this part is so profound. Well, that's why I think it's so important. The line at the end of the book, um, belief is a hard thing to gauge where Davy is concerned. Yep, because it puts the concept of are you going to believe in this place that the story is telling us about? Because if you don't, then it is, you are lonely in, in the, in a wilderness, right? It, 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 it is, it is nihilism, right? Yes. Um, but if you do believe in it, if the place is real, then, then that's what you grasp onto. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what gives you the ability to breathe in this world. And I, and I, there, it's yep. all just so tied together and really beautifully crafted. And that's, da- that's Jeremiah Land's last command. I keep saying it, but tell Davy, like now Davy. Yeah. Witness. Yes. Be a witness. Like I, he has to send Reuben back and Reuben, Reuben and Davy have this bond. And like Reuben is the one who can save Davy, but you can't compel him. And that's what he's, that's his last, that's his last statement. That that's Ruben's last statement as a witness is I cannot make Davy believe. And I accept that, but I can just tell what I saw. Make of it what you will. And he says, you know, he, he says what mortal creations are language and memory. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that line. Which is, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to get across everything you want to get across, especially when you deeply want someone to believe something because that belief changes everything. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you guys think that they're at some point in their future that Davey could believe? Yeah. Do you think he will? 
I do, yes. His curiosity with um, Reuben is a hopeful sign. Let's see you breathe. Breathe, Davy said. Let's see you breathe. Yeah. Well, he says, don't you ever doubt it, as if mm-hmm. to say, I need to know that I'm not the only one who feels like has doubts, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it doesn't, it's not like, this is so dumb. That doesn't, line doesn't read like that. It reads like, I want to believe, but I feel these doubts. Do you feel this way too? Tell me you feel this way too. So I have someone mm. to, like, so, so we have, so you can, I need to know that I'm not the only one. And he says, and in fact, I have, and perhaps will again. But then when I doubt here is what happens, I look out the window at the red farm and I have to say, it, this reminded me of the, the, uh, William, um, the red wheelbarrow. Oh yeah. So much depends upon the red wheelbarrow. The red wheelbarrow. Um, William Carlos Williams. And uh, I don't know why, but huh. when he has doubts, here's what happens. I look out the window at the red farm and then I breathe deeply. And so he tells the whole scenario and then it says, then I breathe deeply. And because he can now breathe, certainty enters into him like light, like a piece of science and curious music seems to hum inside my fingers. And he says, is there a single person on whom I can press belief? No, all I can do is say, here's how it went. Here's what I saw. I've been there and I'm going back. Make of it what you will. And, you know, you, you, the concept of witness is so interesting because it's so limited Mm -hmm. and you can't make someone have faith in something, you know, you can, the fact that you can only, the fact that you can only say what you saw to it is frustrating, you know, but he seems to have hope at the end that Davy can believe, like, it seems to be he seems to have hope that that's possible. He doesn't seem to write off the notion that Davy's going to be alone, despairing in a sort of empty, lonely wilderness, even if he Mm -hmm. kind of is actually, you know? Right. Yeah. I think Sarah being tied to it. And then also the mention of Butch Cassidy is uh, a big part of it because uh, they talk about Mr. Cassidy's beloved roles on a steaming plate. And in some Mm -hmm. way, I think that has to be calling back to the notion of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid and how, they say that Butch Cassidy actually ended up, you, you know, like the legend is not what everyone thinks it is. It's not the movie, for example, when they got shot down in Bolivia. He actually came back and settled down in Kansas and became a man of the church. Uh-huh. Like I think that little reference, that little yep. illusion, that little callback seems to be suggesting that there is hope for Davy's soul. I agree. Yep. I hey, I, agree. The bottom of 301, while we're here, yep. um, I saw a man afoot. And, and now far across my across uh, valley, I saw a man afoot. So this is the middle of the last paragraph. The skin was dark. He wore a buckler in the helm of the Spanish knight. Are we supposed to know who this is, or is this just one of the inhabitants of the la- of this land? You mean is that a specific reference to a specific? Yeah. Well, at first I thought Don Quixote. <laughs> is this something that's happened earlier in the book? No, I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Although maybe it's the tramp. Yeah, that's right. We would finally tie up the tramp. Yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd come back to the tramp. Okay, I, I just thought that maybe you guys were like, oh yeah, just like this reference early in the book. I just, and I, and I had missed it, but maybe he is just an occupant. Right, because they're going all to see arriving. Everybody's arriving at the yeah. same time as if they're going off to it for some imminent and joyous and sanctified war everyone's arriving at the city at the same time this 
Well, he talks about archaic beauty so too. I yeah. think like I think it ties it to an ancient ancient time. In some ways, I think it I thought of um Don Quixote, but I don't that seems I don't know exactly how to make that work. <laughs> or if it works, it's just what occurred to me. Right. I guess I just thought of like a, a Red Cross knight. Some kind of yeah, right, yeah. Um medieval crusade image but yeah it ties it to an ancient time sure yeah right, exactly well and it ties it to timelessness right the eternal now that when we when 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 we enter the kingdom of god we will be welcomed in at the same time as anybody else who's ever died because in in the in the kingdom everything is now and that's so just so beautiful. And there are, it, there are so many references to Lewis in here and his vision of, of the kingdom and of the, that next country, even referring to it as a country is very Lewisoni, Lewisian. Lewisonian. Yes. Lewisian. Lewisian. Yeah. <laughs> so are we, so, so, okay. Did he die or is this like a vision? How do you read oh, that? I think he died. I do too. So you think it's a resurrection? Like a, yes. like a Lazarus type thing. Yes. Have you heard the joke about Laz- the the thing about? Or I guess it's a poem, isn't it? Like a, a Yeats poem or something about Lazarus on his deathbed, going, "Ah, here we go again." Well, that's what that's the that's that's the Wait, where did, I here. just heard that Swede did. Swede wrote a poem. That's right. That's it's, right. Her poetry book is flat out perfect. It all rhymes. I love that. By the way, a uh, one ballad seems inspired by my own somewhat unique future. My favorite lines. Drat, thought dying Lazarus. This part again. <laughs> but isn't that, that an great. allusion to an Eliot or Yeats poem, like a real poem like that she's referencing? I don't know. Yeah, I don't me remember neither. that, but I'm sure you're right. Oh, I would I that's, love the that's um, a strong statement to make. I'm probably not. I just thought it was. <laughs> I made it intentionally. I'm sure you're what, right. What page is that that we just that that's page three oh eight. Um, the, her yep. whole little it's battle with the critics. I know, that's so great. <laughs> so great. She's, I mean, she's just characterized really perfectly. She stays, she is herself from the beginning to the end of this novel in every way. Everything she does is completely explained within the context of the story. A letter starting, you poor man. (laughs) That's so great. So I'm going to start my uh, emails to Tim. (laughs) You poor man. Against writerly protocol, she returned fire writing the reviewer a long and personal critique, impugning his education, prose, honor, and masculinity. (laughs) She suffers no fools. That's right. She's so great. What do you think of the way that he kind of just like says, you should know, and then he summarizes Jape, and you should know Anderson and stuff like that. Like he just sort of, he's like, ah, you probably want to know this, so I'm just going to kind of throw it out there. Does does that, that, how does that strike you, either of you? It didn't bother me. Like I, I thought it was because those are the kinds of things that once you get to, they're not afterthoughts. They're really important. Um, but that's how you tell a story. Like it felt very, um, you know, I'm like reading it aloud in my head, which I know that that can't actually possibly happen. But um, that's that's kind of how you tell a oh, metaphor. Don't, yes, don't. No. Yeah, I guess so. Don't forget. Don't let me forget to tell you. Hmm. Yeah, I, last week I mentioned that it reads like an oral sort of story. Yeah. Where, you know, he's 
she's sweet is the, the writer and he's not a writer. He's a, he's telling the story. And I think these are the kinds of examples of things that, that drive that home that for him, it's, you know, he, it, to me, it almost seems like he could be on his own deathbed telling the story or he could be um, telling it to his grandchildren or something like that as part of a oral tradition almost. Mm. Right. I can see that. Well, we should start thinking about how we want to wrap this up and we should, uh, you know, we'll touch on a lot of stuff next week when people ask questions. Cause I know people, there were people who actually had problems with the, um, dream sequence stuff. So, or, or dream sequence, death, whatever. Um, we will touch on that more then because I think we'll get questions about, about it more directly. And I want to be able to, I want to address those, but we'll save it for, for that time. So let's do a favorite passage to wrap up this episode. Tim or Heidi, who, who wants to go first? Which, who, who has one you know, marked and ready to go? The one that I was going to read, I just read about Swede firing back at the critic. So I'm sure that I have others, but I would need to dig a little bit here. That's fine. That's fine. Heidi, do you have one that you want to... Do you want to... I already read mine too, but I'll read it again. Wait, <laughs> that's an option? Just read it again? <laughs> yeah, I just said I would, and now I'm going to. <laughs> um, on page 309, and I'll, I'll, read, I'll read a chunk here, starting with, uh, so I told, you got awfully big. You got awfully big, he told me that first morning in the cafe. So I told him what had happened about my foray into the next country and dad catching up with me there. Belief is a hard thing to gauge where Davy is concerned. And he sent you back? I told him dad didn't exactly send me, but that I could go on no farther, that it seemed like a transaction had taken place on my behalf. Breathe, Davy said. Let's see you breathe. Well, that was the easy part. Harder was describing that land itself, its upward running river, its people on the move and ground astir with song. For just as that music stays outside the pattern I would give it, so does my telling fall pitifully short of what the place is. What mortal creations are language and memory? And so I sound like a man making the most marginal sense, as if I were <laughs> describing one of those dreams that seemed so genuine at the time. Don't you ever doubt it? Davy asked. And in fact, I have, and perhaps will again. But here's what happens. I look out the window at the red farm. For here we live, Sarah and I, in a new house across the meadow, a house built by capable arms and open lungs and joyous sweat. Maybe I see our daughter, home from school, picking plums or apples for Roxana. Maybe one of our sons, reading on the grass or painting an upended canoe. Or maybe Sarah comes into the room, my darling Sarah, with Mr. Cassidy's beloved rolls on a steaming plate. Then I breathe deeply, and certainty enters into me like light, like a piece of science, and curious music seems to hum inside my fingers. Is there a single person on whom I can press belief? No, sir. All I can do is say, here's how it went. Here's what I saw. I've been there, and I'm going back. Make of it what you will. I think it's just a beautiful ending and that it does tie together those thematic things and, um, and, and gives us like a healed Reuben, which I think is part of the whole point of the book. Mm. 
Yeah. I think we should end on that. <laughs> yeah. I do. Uh, you think we should end on the end? Yeah. Probably good idea. I think we should end on the end. Start at the beginning, keep going till the end, and then stop. <laughs> Seems to be the way of things, huh? <laughs> All right. Well then with that, yeah, we'll wrap it up. Don't forget that next week we will do the Q and a episode. So, you know, send us your questions, close reads podcast at gmail.com or at close reads pods on Instagram and Twitter. And then of course there is the Facebook discussion group. Uh, if you're not a part of that, you can just head over to Facebook and then in the search bar type close reads and that should pop up for you. You can click that little join button and we will accept you. Uh, don't forget that after that, we're going to be diving into JD Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye, a little brief four week, three week, four, something like that, foray into that book. That was the book that the winners of our auction item chose. They got to bid uh, on the opportunity to choose a book for the show and they chose Catcher in the Rye. So we're going to discuss it down that. To one of, wasn't there another book that was a possibility for them? It was Peace uh, Like a River. Oh, was it really? Yeah. Oh, oh well. no kidding. Well, they got what they, they, they got their cake and they get to eat it. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. Um, so we'll do that next. That will be a fun one because there's going to be a lot of love and hate both ways on that one, I assume, on the Facebook page. So yeah, um, we will discuss that. And then, of course, over on the Patreon page, this week, our first episode on Crime and Punishment goes up. So be on the lookout for that. That'll go up in the next couple of days. Uh, if you have not already uh, subscribed, you can go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash close reads to support the show and get access to those uh, to that content and then also some sweet show swag. Good job. Well <laughs> um, done. It takes me... You have to go real slow, which kind of draws attention to it, but I'm just not capable of saying sweet show swag very, very many times very quickly. So I don't have that mental dexterity for it. <laughs> Unlike sweet. Any final thoughts from either of you? No. No, I have no final interpretive thoughts, but thank you for making me read this book. (laughs) I wouldn't have done it without the show, and I'm so glad that I did. Good, good. With that, for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading.